Welcome to our quarterly podcast, where we look back at the most recent quarter, sharing our view on the macroeconomic landscape and updating you on portfolio performance. I'm Helen Watson, the CEO of the UK Wealth Management Business, and I'm joined by our global investment strategist, Kevin Gardner, and one of our co-heads of portfolio management, Hugo Capelcure. Firstly, a happy new year to everyone. And I hope you and your families were able to enjoy the festive period despite the circumstances and that those of you in the UK are all coping in the recent return to national lockdown. Despite the pandemic and ongoing restrictions, we do remain optimistic that the rolling out of vaccinations will enable a return to some sort of normality. And economically, we've seen significant recovery in many countries, as well as some strong market performance, not to mention a strong quarter for portfolios. So Hugo, to kick us off, can you tell us a bit more about how our clients' portfolios performed this quarter? I'm pleased to say they performed very well, both in absolute terms and also uh, relative to market returns. And all of these numbers are for balanced portfolios or the new court funds. So sterling portfolios were up around 8 to 9% over the last three months, which means that they were up 11 to 12% for the year. For US dollar portfolios, they were up around 11% over three months and around 15% for the year. And euro portfolios were up around 9% over three months and the same quantum for the year. And the differences between the three portfolios are partly due to currency movements. The euro was the strongest of the three currencies over the last year with the dollar lagging. And aside from that, the dollar and sterling portfolios also had a little bit more bond duration via the inflation protected bonds, which proved helpful. So, Kevin, in terms of markets, the fourth quarter was particularly strong for risk assets. But why was that? Well, they did particularly well because I guess the we had news of the vaccines getting closer. A couple of countries were starting to roll out uh, vaccines before the end of the quarter. At the same time, government policy and central bank policies remained tremendously supportive. The economic data, despite the second wave of contagion, economic data also remained less fragile and feared. And several of the big economies were clearly growing right the way through to year end, despite that second wave of contagion. And of course, at the same time, we've almost overlooked these. That said, we can't overlook one of these in the last couple of days, but geopolitical developments were quite favorable as well. The US election, as I said, at least until this week, seemed to have passed off relatively safely um, with a transition of power towards a government that isn't likely to do anything hugely disruptive from a business point of view. We saw the European Union moving forwards with its plans for a federalist support package to to assist recovery from the pandemic. And then right at the very end of the year, of course, we had a Brexit deal. So quite a few things came together to make this a particularly strong quarter. In a year as a whole, it was pretty good to begin with. And so, as you say, it kind of as went the quarter, so went the year. You know, people were absolutely not expecting that at the beginning of the year. And when you looked at sort of predictions, et cetera, even pre-pandemic, they weren't as positive as the year turned out to be. You know, how surprising do you think that is? Well, the outcome for the year as a whole and even the fourth quarter, it's not quite as surprising as it appears, because if you think about the the crisis from the beginning, and we, we did feel this, that it was first and foremost a public health emergency with horrible financial and economic consequences, rather than first and foremost, an economic or financial crisis to begin with. And what that meant, we felt, was that as the illness moved on as contagion eventually began to subside or vaccines became available or we adapted to it, 
we thought business would be able to move back towards uh, business as usual. Um, so we did feel that some recovery was possible. And of course, that's what markets do. They anticipate expected recovery. They look forwards, not backwards. And the recovery did, in fact, begin in the third quarter. And it started at quite a brisk pace. And then perhaps most importantly, all the time that this was going on, the policy background was tremendously friendly. And in particular, interest rate expectations, both short-term interest rates and bond markets, implied yields, interest rate expectations fell quite markedly. And that revalues all financial markets uh, upwards. So those things together suggested that uh, the outcome, the scale and the speed perhaps of the, the, the rise in markets was a little surprising, but the directional move for us wasn't hugely surprising. If you like, you can think of the year in terms of sound bites. Probably one of the most popular sound bites through the year was you're on mute. Well, for us in market terms, it was looking across the valley because that's what they were doing. Well, you're not on mute, Kevin. You are coming in and out a little bit, but I think people will forgive us given that we're all in various sort of corners of our homes. Hugo, what were you most surprised by? Generally, it was the it was the speed with which markets bounced back from their lows and then continued to to rally. If anything, that was more surprising to me than the falls that we saw early in the year as the pandemic uh, took hold globally that we had been preparing for. I mean, not the pandemic specifically, but we had been preparing portfolios for a, a potential pullback. So it was really just the speed with which everything bounced back. In the last podcast, uh, Hugo, in October, you talked about a potential rotation from the more highly rated sort of you know, for want of a collective growth stocks, um, such as the big technology companies, to sort of cheaper areas of the market or the so-called value stocks. We definitely saw that beginning to happen over the last few weeks of the quarter. How how did that impact our clients' portfolios? Well, the short answer is uh, enormously. The 9th of November was the day that Pfizer and BioNTech uh, announced that their vaccine was 90% effective against the coronavirus. And this triggered an immediate rotation in the market as investors looked for recovery candidates to a back. Actually, when you look at these statistics, this was the biggest single day shift from growth to value that has ever been observed, taking the US market as an example. This was then reinforced by Moderna and then AstraZeneca Oxford University, following with their vaccines as well uh, later in the quarter. Uh, we were positioned well for this rotation and had been gently repositioning portfolios for it all year, really. And November turned out to be the single best month in the history of the balanced portfolios. And when we analysed performance over the quarter, the real standouts were Ryanair up 45%, Lloyds, Wells Fargo and Booking Holdings up more than 30%. And when we look at the funds, the two that own the most of these types of cyclical stocks of Phoenix and Lansdowne, and both of those were up over 30% as well. It's amazing how many firsts we've had this year in terms of speed of things. The Lansdowne fund, that was purchased during the first quarter um, when markets were under pressure. You said it's done very well in the fourth quarter. How's it performed since we bought it? Well, as we speak today, the fund is up around 33% from when it was bought back in March to the end of the year. So all of that performance came sort of in that post-vaccine period. I haven't got a more recent data point, but looking at their core holdings, it should be doing very well so far this year as well. And like the previous quarter, so the third quarter, the performance was driven by the return assets rather than the diversifiers? 
Yes, that's right. It was the stocks and the equity funds that really performed. Though, if we hadn't had the diversifying assets, in other words, the protection in place earlier in the year, I don't think we would have been in the same strong position to have added to the stocks and funds at such attractive prices. So when we attribute performance between the two sides of the portfolio, I feel it doesn't really tell the whole story. We should, we should take some performance away from the return assets and give it back to the diversifiers. When we break down the performance, the return assets were up almost 16% in the, in the final quarter, which is ahead of the sort of MSCI World Index by over 2%. And for the diversifiers, despite the rise in equity markets, they added around 0.3% to performance. Uh, much of that came from the trend followers and the uh, TIPS ETF that's, that's held. The protection slightly detracted from performance, as we would expect in a rising market. But given the portfolio's positioning going into the year-end rally, it didn't cost portfolios too much. If we look back at 2020 as a whole... If I think back, I can't remember any other year when we had both elements, i.e. the return assets and the diversifiers, you know, the diversifiers really being hedges, where we saw both generating returns. What was the overall breakdown of the returns between the two? If we take the sterling portfolios uh, as an example, the return assets rose 15.1% and contributed 12% at portfolio level. The diversifying assets were up 6.4% for an overall contribution of 2.3%. Then there was a negative currency impact of 1.1% given sterling's relative strength against the dollar over the year. However, this was partly offset by the currency hedges that were in place. Um, so largely from the return assets rather than the diversifiers, but I would definitely stress again that having the diversifiers in place made it much easier to add to the return assets at good points uh, and to generate the good performance on the, that side of the portfolio. So on performance, which stocks and funds contributed the most and, uh, Hugo, the least to uh, performance? So on the return asset side, there were, there were strong performances from the majority of the stocks and funds. However, the standouts um, were from the cable companies uh, whose internet services were in high demand, uh, understandably. So Cable One, Charter and Comcast gained 50, 36 and 20% respectively for the year. Deer uh, up 57% and Ashtid up a remarkable 44% because it's in the cyclical industry uh, supplying the higher equipment. They were both strong, but the overall portfolio impact from them was much greater as both of these are in these cyclical industries and the positions were topped up very attractive levels earlier in the year. The Bears Fund, focusing on high-growth U.S. Uh, tech stocks, was in a sweet spot and gained 75%. And the Vanda, uh, i.e. the Cedarberg Fund and the Ward Ferry Fund, spanning China and more broadly Asia, were up 43% and 52%. And in terms of what's uh, detracted from performance, it was the two banks, Wells Fargo and Lloyd's, which even though they had big rallies in the final quarter of the year, were both still down 41% uh, for the year. Aside from those two, Fox fell 20% for the year, and the sale of the kitchen equipment manufacturer Middleby came when the shares were down 45% uh, for the year and when we had concerns about the viability of that business. Finally, Phoenix, which is heavily exposed to UK domestic stocks, was down around 12% for the year, 
uh, which surprisingly beat the uh, FTSE 100 index. And within the diversifiers, the Acura fund uh, doubled in value, which added 1.5% to overall portfolio performance. And this is the result of the fund monetizing most of the gains from its equity derivative exposures straight after the equity market downturn. Thanks. So looking ahead, Kevin, you've talked in the past, I mean, sorry, you've talked about the past rather than uh, in the past. What does your crystal ball tell you? Uh, I know you have one. Uh, what does your crystal ball tell you about the future? Well, I wish, but uh, obviously near-term risks, you know, you've got to worry a little bit about the current levels of contagion, uh, particularly in Europe and here in the UK, uh, because the renewed lockdowns that we're seeing inevitably are going to have, again, a temporary impact on economic activity and on corporate profits, and that's going to be a little bit uh, unsettling. And also, because they've just had a great run already, Global stock markets are hardly cheap. They're pretty expensive at the moment. And that said, they're not as expensive as we think bonds might be. And they're also not as expensive or close to being as expensive as they were back in 2000. But they're still well above uh, fair value in a longer term sense, as it were, at the moment. So they're looking a little bit pricey. That said, taking a really long term view, we still feel that uh, a mixture of adaptation, social distancing, uh, hopefully the vaccines, and of course, very friendly policy is going to keep investors focused on that longer term view, not on the short term risks. And if that's the case, we think even though they're expensive, we think stocks probably do still have inflation beating potential, even from these levels. If we've got longer term concerns, there are probably two of them. Uh, first of them has to be that some eventual increase in inflation is going to come along. My guess is the policy is going to be too generous for too long and that it's not going to be taken off the table when economies recover as we think they can be. So that's a concern that we've got for the longer term. And also something that's a little bit unsettling is that just before Christmas, the Financial Times published a, a big article suggesting that there is no stock market bubble. I'm being a little bit facetious here, but uh, the Financial Times, in my experience, is almost always wrong about stock markets. So that's a little bit unsettling. Hugo, given our broader views on markets and the research that you've been doing on stocks and funds, um, how are the portfolios being positioned? And, um, and can you talk a little bit about what changes you've made? Well, in, in terms of the broader views, uh, I certainly share some of the Kevin's worries about the FT's enthusiasm. Um, it could have been worse, though, Kevin. It might have been in The Economist. Fair point. However, on balance, uh, we are positive, um, especially as we continue to see plenty of return potential from the portfolio holdings. A lot of them, for example, the UK domestic stocks still look very cheap to us. And in terms of the changes we've made to portfolios and where that leaves them positioned, we've been continuing to trim some of the holdings following the very strong recent runs. So we sold some Deer, some Berkshire Hathaway, some American Express, some Admiral Insurance. We also trimmed the Ryanair holding. So this was originally reduced in January last year at 16 euros. It was then repurchased the following month at 12 euros. In hindsight, that, that, that was too early. If we'd waited another month, we could have bought the shares back at 8 euros. And then we sold it again in November last year for about 16 euros again. And Helen, you asked me about big surprises last year. And I, I, I really should have added that Ryanair is, is being a good con a contributor to performance in a year where their passenger numbers were down nearly two-thirds. Now, that's a surprise. Yeah. Um, ultimately, it seems 
the market can see that, that they should be a relative winner from this uh, crisis. However, it wasn't all sales last quarter. We also added two new positions, Eurofins Scientific and Constellation Software. So Eurofins is a France-based but multinational lab testing company, one of the global market leaders, and it's a, it's a key player in COVID testing, amongst other things. We were a bit frustrated that we weren't able to conclude our research earlier, uh, as understandably the shares had a good 2020. However, we see a multi-year opportunity for the stock as they're exposed to other developing trends, such as personalized medicine, uh, which could be enormous. And Constellation is a Canada-based aggregator software companies that operate in small market niches. So our research indicates that there are tens of thousands of these types of businesses across North America and Europe. So this is another business with a very interesting longer-term uh, runway. And finally, on the diversifying asset side of the portfolio, we sold two in-the-money Eurostoxx puts just before the US elections. So the markets had a bit of a wobble in the days leading up to the election. And the level of volatility, which is the biggest driver of the price of these options, had risen. This gave us the opportunity to salvage some of the value of these options before they expired. And with hindsight, this was a little lucky as the markets rallied pretty strongly, you know, pretty much from the very day that we sold the options. But we'll, we'll, we'll take luck wherever we can get it. We then recycled some of these proceeds back into a new put option, a one-year option on, on the S&P 500 index in December as the pricing had become more appealing. Uh, so getting some protection back in place for the portfolios there. So there was a lot of activity last year. Someone once told me a lucky portfolio manager is not a bad thing. <laughs> um, so uh, Hugo, you know it's my favourite question. What are you the most excited about? I feel we have a really good mix of investments. So we have some things which still look very cheap uh, and definitely could rebound further as we move through the pandemic. So I, I know banks are a dirty word, but they could definitely uh, surprise on the upside, particularly if yield curves are steepen. And now that there's at least a Brexit deal in place, and even if it might be imperfect and thin in places such as services, we could see some interest return to UK stocks, which have been you know, pretty much in the wilderness in their recent years. And then there are the secular growth stories. So I mentioned software and lab testing as recent additions, but there are plenty of others in the portfolios. And these are growth stories at valuations that we can rationalize. So I'm not talking about Tesla here. So we feel that we have a good blend overall and uh, plenty of interesting research programs ongoing as well. Great. Thank you, uh, Hugo, Kevin. I hope everybody's enjoyed listening to the podcast. Please do keep sending questions that you have to your client advisor. The podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify, so please subscribe to either of those platforms to get them uh, as soon as they're released. It just remains to say that I wish you all a very happy and healthy 2021, and thank you very much for listening. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co. for information purposes only. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation, or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund, or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort, and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the content accuracy or any reliance on the information provided. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance. This content should only be used or reproduced 
with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.